Thank you, Pastor Phil. Thank you. It's great to be back at Valley. Shalom. Shalom. I always feel at home here, and uh, he keeps on inviting me back. I don't know why, but uh, it's so great. You know, uh, you said you didn't know that I was going to be executive director. I didn't know I was going to be the executive director either, but uh, God is in control, and I'm blessed to be able to tell you that we're seeing some wonderful things happen in Juice for Jesus. You know, we are celebrating our 40th anniversary, and we've done some special things. We have some really um, exciting plans that are top secret. Uh, I can't tell you about it. Really, I can't, um, because we're concerned that we get a chance to make this happen, and we have an active opposition, so we're not even telling our, our supporters yet, but if you hear from Juice for Jesus through the mail, you'll hear about it the beginning of April. Something's happening in April. To celebrate our 40th, perhaps one of the most controversial and dynamic outreaches that we've had. And uh, so uh, keep praying for us. 40th anniversary, it's a big deal, you know. 40 is a generation in the, in the Bible. And uh, even though we like to tell people that we were established 32 A.D., give or take a year, <laughs> it was really in the Bay Area. And just about the time that Valley was getting going and Panole there, uh, Moish was starting Juice for Jesus, and it was really a part of the move of God's Holy Spirit. And uh, we were so excited. In fact, Jews for Jesus started in order to provide some kind of a legal uh, apparatus for this music group that started singing out on Fisherman's Wharf on the streets there. They called themselves the Liberated Wailing Wall. Moise said, well, wailing certainly describes your singing, but... Uh, <laughs> Now, 40 years later, there's been 18 albums of music, and so uh, to remember that wonderful uh, ministry of, of music, we, we just started, uh, we, we just produced an album from generation to generation, 40 years of Messianic music favorites from Jews for Jesus, 18 albums, we have 18 songs, and someone said, well, how did you pick the favorites? And I said, well, they're my favorites, you know, that's, uh, you get to do that when you become the executive director, but... Uh, we have these out in the back and um, lots of other things. Devotions from the field. We put a, together a whole uh, year's worth of devotions from different staff members, missionaries, Jews for Jesus, and your own pastor, Phil, has a, a, a heavy dose of salting and peppering those wonderful devotions. So uh, stop at the table and uh, look at some of the material that we have in Jews for Jesus. Uh, those early days, you know, there was something happening. It was a move of the Holy Spirit, really. Tens of thousands of young Jews came to faith in Christ. That's what began Jews for Jesus, the organization. And it was in the middle of all that that something was happening throughout our culture. You know, the counter uh, culture, the Vietnam War protests. And in the middle of all that, God was saving young people. Uh, the counter culture became the Jesus Revolution. And uh, we see the impact of that on the church here in America to this very day. And that was really the first wave of Jews coming to Jesus in this modern era. And then, uh, back in the late 80s and early 1990s, God began to do something in the former Soviet Union. The Iron Curtain hadn't fallen yet, but we sent some folks over there, Avi Snyder and others, and they found a tremendous openness. And Jews started coming to Jesus, and then the Iron Curtain fell, and Tens of thousands of other people started coming to faith. And, and there was a move of God's Spirit throughout the former Soviet Union. And now we see that in the midst of the crisis going on in Ukraine, 
that there is a vibrant, active church that's standing up and preaching the gospel, and that's where the largest branch of Jews for Jesus is today. Praise the Lord. But there's something else that's happening, too. And you're aware of it. You're part of this church because you support Oded and Bimini Cohen as well. And they're working Israel. And a number, number of you have been participants with uh, them and some of their outreach as well. They just had a great outreach in the Negev, in the desert, in the southern region. And we were really anticipating some opposition. And uh, we were in Beersheba. And you know what? There was opposition, but there was great openness. And in fact, so great has been the openness and the follow-up work that's going on that we just made a decision in prayer and consultation with Oded and Bimini and the rest of the staff that we were going to send them to start an outpost of Jews for Jesus in Beersheba. Praise the Lord. So they're going to come here in a few more weeks or months. I'm not exactly sure when they're coming this spring, but they'll be able to tell you more about it. But Jews for Jesus in Beersheba, that's where Oded was born and raised. He grew up in, in that area. So they're going back there because the Holy Spirit's at work. Could be the third wave of what God is doing among Jews in the world today. And what that means, I think, is pretty exciting. I was just on the phone. Um, the Moist Rosen Center is in full swing, and there's lots of exciting things happening with young adults. And uh, last night, there were about 50 Israelis who came for an art um, photo gallery about the ministry that we have in India. All unbelievers coming to find out what's going on. Right across from the Rosen Center there in Tel Aviv, there is a wine bar. And it's becoming more popular because of their uh, unique collection of wines. It's not Napa Valley, but you know, Israel's got a wine industry that's growing up in the Golan. And this restaurant, this little wine bar, has got a great reputation. And the owner came to Ellie, the head of our young adult ministry at the Rosen Center. He said, you know, I've got all these people who want to give me a lecture, who want me to give them a lecture on wine and winemaking here in Israel. I can't, I don't have the room for it. Can we use the Rosen Center to do that? And uh, Ellie said, well, sure you can. And he said, you know, first of all, I would want you to introduce the evening. Tell us about who you are and what you believe and what this is all about. Ellie said, sure. He said, you know, there's a great story about Jesus and wine in the Bible. The guy said, perfect, tell that story. So that, <laughs> that's happening next week. So God's at work, you know. It's pretty, not, not the way I would devise our evangelism there, but you know what? <laughs> you got to wait on the Lord and see what he does. But there's opposition, and this is really where I need your prayers, because in the midst of that campaign that Oded and his buddy Tsaki were leading in Beersheba, our, our opposition, which is very active, decided they were going to collude with the Ministry of Immigration in a new way to oppose our efforts. And so while we were a group of, a, of our people, four of them, were standing out by a very, a very trafficked junction, holding up a large banner that said in Hebrew, Jesus is salvation, with a little uh, four a star, you hit the star and then dial four numbers on your cell phone, and you get a live juice for Jesus talking to you. We, we, the phones were ringing off the hook whenever we did this, but up come these immigration officials, six of them, and they said, we need to see your passports. And so there were three of our Israelis who were there, they showed them their passports, they weren't going to touch them, but then there was one of our missionaries from London, Barry Barnett. And he pulled out his British passport, and they said, you have to come with us. And they took him to a detention center, 
and then they threw him in prison. And they said, uh, you were doing illegal messianic activity on a tourist visa. You're not allowed. And after four days in prison, they deported him from the country. And he's not allowed back in for 10 years. Now, this is a new strategy. It's a strategy to try and limit the number of people that we can have doing these kind of campaigns. But you know what? It's an illegal effort because there's no law on the books against any kind of messianic activity except offering financial inducement for the purpose of conversion. Can you imagine Jews for Jesus doing that? <laughs> but they're trying to stop us, and the implications go well beyond Jews for Jesus. Imagine if no tourists could ever bear witness to their faith in the land of Israel. That is the actual implications of this kind of a of a case. And we have wonderful lawyers, they're not believers, but they believe in a free and democratic Israel. And so they have taken this case and they filed papers with the court there in Israel. And you know what? The, the, the court is supposed to give 45 days for the government, the Ministry of the Interior, to respond to our brief. The judge wasn't going to do that. She took that case right away and we're going to court March 12th. And that's really exciting. <laughs> So that's what we need your prayers for, because this judge, you know, she's ruled against the Ministry of the Interior, a very powerful group within the government, made up primarily of the ultra-religious. They're the ones that want to stop the gospel. They're the ones that have taken this action, and we need your prayers. So when you came in, as before, uh, there is a card in your bulletin. If you take that out right now, I want to keep you guys informed. March 12th is the date that this is supposed to go before the courts. And I really believe, you know, Paul appealed to Caesar. And he had told the church in Rome, as soon as I finish my third missionary journey there and, and drop off this offering for the saints in Jerusalem, I'm coming to Rome. Now, he did go to Rome, but not how he expected. He went there in chains, but it was he appealed to Caesar, and to Caesar he went, and God was in charge. So we're, we're appealing to the courts of Israel for justice, and for the freedom for tourists and anyone who wants to come to Israel to testify of their faith in Jesus Christ. And I hope that's some of you. Because we really believe that that is where God is at work right now in a new and exciting way. And the implications of that are far-reaching. But go ahead and take this card, fold it a few times, and then we'll rip it together on the count of three in Hebrew. Echad, shtayim, shalosh. Four, five, six. Okay. Now... Okay, so if you take this card, there's a place that says, I will pray for the peace of Jerusalem. I especially want to remember to pray for, put down court case, March 12th, all right? And then put this in your Bible or on your refrigerator door, wherever you're going to see it, and pray. And pray between now and then. And what I want to do is I want to keep you informed about the specifics. And that's what this card is for. I know a bunch of you already get the newsletter. Go ahead and fill this card out and check the box. It says, I already received your newsletter. But what I would really like is if you have an email address, put that down here with your name. Because then we will be able to send you timely updates on what's happening with this case. I believe that the prayers of God's people are more powerful than anything else. And as you pray, there's going to be an opening. And I believe God has already begun to demonstrate that with this judge. Our, our lawyers were so excited that this judge took this case. And uh, so, you know, it's ultimately the Lord's business. But go ahead and fill this out. And then afterwards, you can drop it here at the front. 
and uh, we'll be able to uh, keep you informed. And if you don't get the newsletter, by the way, you can check the box and receive our newsletter as well. Barry spent four days and nights in a prison, and it wasn't fun. Uh, obviously, believers have been and are imprisoned to this very day for their faith. It's not something that we know much about here in this country. But, you know, when something like that happens to you, it's, it's a time when your priorities get adjusted. <laughs> and you realize that we're not just messing around. You know, we're dealing with real spiritual warfare. We're dealing with real consequences. We're being able, God is giving us the opportunity to determine and to understand what it is that matters most in this world. And that's what I want to talk about today as we look at Acts chapter 1, verses 1 through 11. Now imagine, most of us aren't given this opportunity, like this dear woman who knew that she was going to die, and I'm sure sitting down with you, Pastor Phil and Carolyn, she talked about the things of the Lord and the things that mattered most to her. Imagine if you were given the opportunity, maybe you, you weren't going to die, but you, you, were, you were able to know and discern that this was the last opportunity you were going to have to speak to the ones that you love the most. What would you say? I can assure you, you wouldn't spend your time watching reruns of Gilligan's Island. You'd have an opportunity to think, what do I want to convey to this, these people that I love? that's most important to me, what matters most. Well, that's what we have here in Acts chapter 1 because this is the last occasion that Jesus had to spend with the people that he loved the most before his ascension. And of course, you know that the book of Acts was written by Luke who also wrote the gospel of Luke. And I've often told folks, you know, all the New Testament was written by Jews for Jesus, with the possible exception of Luke. But Luke was a doctor anyway, so who knows, right? <laughs> but recently I read, and this is kind of a little aside, but it's interesting, uh, the, uh, the work of Dr. David Allen, who's a professor of homiletics in Greek at Southern Seminary, where he contends that Luke was a Jew. More than that, Luke was a priest, and that it, he wrote the book of Hebrews, Really interesting, the Lucan authorship of the book of Hebrews. Check it out, you can find it online. Uh, it doesn't matter either way because we do know that Luke wrote the, the book that we're looking at here, Acts. And after having recorded all the things that Jesus said and did, he wanted to give us this last scene, this last scenario of what Jesus was saying and doing after he rose from the dead. He wanted, first of all, his followers then and now to be convinced of the truth of the gospel. You know, there, there's a lot of doubt that grows up in the church today. A lot of reasons for unbelief. Jesus wants his people to know what matters most, and it's the gospel and to be convinced of the truth of the gospel, and then secondly, to be consumed with the spread of the gospel. This is how Jesus identifies what matters most in these 11 verses. And he does this by, first of all, giving those disciples, those apostles, and us some parting commands. This is what Jesus said until the day, verse 2, when he was taken up to heaven 
after he had by the Holy Spirit given orders or parting commands to the apostles whom he had chosen. So Jesus gives very specific instructions, which I would imagine you and I would want to do if we were talking to people knowing this is the last time we were going to have a chance to chat, the last time we would talk to them on this earth. And so Jesus gives orders. He gives commands, parting commands. And, you know, we're living in a time where people are uncomfortable with religious duty. They're uncomfortable with a religion that makes demands, that gives commands. Rather, a kind of a fuzzy spirituality seems to exist, especially here in America. You know, people want to have a kind of a spiritual cafeteria-style approach to what they believe, you know. They take their little spiritual tray and they walk down the aisle and they say, hmm, I think I'll choose one from column A and two from column B. You know, have you seen this before? You know, that's, that's fine for you, but I, I, I believe this, you know. Well, Jesus wanted his disciples then and now to know that, no, he's the king, and he has commands to give. I mean, Moses didn't come down from Mount Sinai with the ten suggestions. <laughs> I remember once I was on a plane coming back from preaching over the weekend in Las Vegas, and there was a seat next to me that was empty. And I was pretty happy about that because I could stretch out on the little flight from Vegas to San Francisco. But then at the last minute, just before the plane door closes, up you know, runs this guy, he's sweating profusely, obviously he had had quite a weekend, and he proceeded to tell me about it as he sat down in loud tones about all that he had done. You know, they have that saying, what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. <laughs> Don't believe it, <laughs> because people take it back with them, and sometimes there's some real tragedy. Well, this man was just full of himself and full of all the stories about what he had been doing at this convention. He says, well, were you in Vegas for our convention? I said, no, I was preaching at a church. He said, oh, who are you? And I said, well, I'm with Jews for Jesus. Ever heard of that? He said, Jesus? Oh, I love Jesus. I said to him, sir, Jesus said, if you love me, you keep my commandments. Well, that produced a wonderful silence that lasted for some time. <laughs> But you know what I mean, people don't want to hear that God has commands and demands that he places on our lives, but that's what will be, what kind of a gospel doesn't put a demand on people's lives? This gospel commands our attention, demands our allegiance. He's the king, we are his loyal citizens. You want to believe the gospel, obey his commands and live your life that way and see how God uses your life to demonstrate to the world what matters most. Jesus gave parting commands, and he gave convincing proofs. Look at verse 3. To these, that is the apostles, he also presented himself alive after his suffering by many convincing proofs, appearing to them over a period of 40 days and speaking of the things concerning the kingdom of God. Now that's the only place in the Bible where we find out how long it was between Jesus' resurrection and his ascension. 40 days. 40 is a significant number. 40 years in the wilderness. 40 years is a generation. 40 days was the time that Jesus took with those he loved 
to explain to them what mattered most. And Luke actually gives us quite a few of those convincing proofs. He presented himself alive, first of all. I mean, maybe people had heard that Jesus was supposed to be alive, but there's nothing like having him walk into the room and be there. And that's what the disciples experienced. Remember that? They were behind closed doors. They were fearing for their life. There were rumors that Jesus was alive, but that rumor didn't have the power of when Jesus showed up and said, well, he didn't say boo, <laughs> because he wasn't a ghost, right? He said, shalom aleichem, peace be with you. And he breathed on them the Holy Spirit, John tells us. And that's an amazing encounter. But, you know, in case these disciples were wondering afterward, was, he, was it real? Did it really happen? Jesus said, let's have some food. And so they gave him some bread, and he put the bread in his mouth, and it was gone. It wasn't there. They gave him some fish, and he ate the fish, and I, I imagine there were bones on the plate afterwards because he was real. He was alive. He met people on the road to Emmaus. They saw him. They knew. It transformed their lives. Paul tells, ta tells us later, for what I received, I passed on to you of first importance. Paul says, we figured it out. Jesus told us, this is what matters most, and now I'm telling you. Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. He was buried. He was raised on the third day according to the scriptures and that he appeared to Peter and then to the 12. And after that, he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time. This is no apparition. It's real. Hallelujah. Jesus rose from the dead. And, you know, we're coming up on, you know, Holy Week. And, and you know, this is, this is the month where you're going to hear about what Juice for Jesus is doing with our this special outreach, but every time it seems, Time Magazine and Newsweek, they have these, you know, Jesus is on the cover during Holy Week. Have you noticed? But when you look inside the pages of Time Magazine, what's written there is not designed to affirm the resurrection, but to undermine. And this is the world that we live in today, and so that's why Jesus said, you need to know I'm real, I'm alive. The road to Emmaus, at the tomb, wherever it was, Jesus was showing up, and now he's showing up to convince them that it's true. Ours is not a theoretical faith. It's based upon evidence, and Jesus gave that evidence too. Luke records a wonderful story. And, I mean, this, this is what it says. And beginning with Moses, Jesus talks to his disciples, and he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. That was on the road to Emmaus. And then later on in that locked room, he said to them, this is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms. And then, then he opened their minds so they could understand the scriptures. Wouldn't you have loved to have been in on that little discipleship session? Oh my goodness, we have so many people today that are getting educated beyond their intelligence in the seminaries. You know what I'm saying? They read the Bible and they decide, oh, that prophecy in the Old Testament, Isaiah 53 is really not talking about Jesus. It's talking about the people of Israel. And only Jesus by allegory, since he's Israel's greater son. Baloney! Jesus told us that these things were written about him. And we need to be convinced of the truth of the gospel. And how does this happen today? Well, Jesus, you know, what he, remember what he said to Thomas? When, he, when Thomas was doubting back then, he hadn't seen Jesus the first time he showed up. And so finally, you know, he says, I'm not going to believe unless I can see, you know, put my finger in the holes in his hand. 
And he sees Jesus and he just says, my Lord and my God. Remember what Jesus said? He said, Thomas, you know, you've seen because you believe because you've seen. Blessed are they who have not seen and yet believe. He was talking about you. He was talking about me. Are you with me? We need to believe and have the confidence, even though we haven't seen. And the scriptures and Jesus' teaching. If you understand the scriptures, you're going to be convinced of the truth. But what really was so significant that sealed the deal, if you will, using theological terminology, it sealed the deal that the Holy Spirit seals to our mind and heart the truth of the gospel. And so that's why Jesus said this third effort to convince us of the truth. He said, now, here's what you need to do. This is in verses 4 and 5. You can, you, you can be convinced of the truth of the gospel by, only by the power of the Holy Spirit. No one was ever argued into God's kingdom. It's only a revelation of God's Holy Spirit. And so Jesus, gathering them together, verse 4, he commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for what the Father had promised, which he said, you heard of from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Now, I want to see how many of you can figure this math out, okay? So we know that after the resurrection, Jesus was with them how many days? Okay, now when did this promised Holy Spirit come? How many days after that? What, what day did it come on? Pentecost. What does Pentecost mean in Greek? 50 days. 50 days. So, how many days did they have to wait? Ten days. Woo! I don't like to wait in line. <laughs> I put my, my meal in the microwave oven, right? <laughs> Rather than on the stove. I was driving into work on Friday, and you know, I go down Market Street, and there's a trolley in the left lane, and then there's cars trying to get past it in the right. So I'm behind the trolley, and I'm trying to get over to the right to get past it, and I get just into the right lane, and then the light turns. And, and, you know, and then the trolley pulls ahead, and I would have been much better off staying behind the trolley. And, you know, we get frustrated. We don't like to wait. But you have to wait. They that wait upon the Lord, what? Renew their strength. They'll become convinced of the truth of the gospel because, you see, apart from the Holy Spirit, our faith is weak and tottering. And if you felt that recently, you need to be filled with the Holy Spirit. You need to ask the Holy Spirit to come and renew your faith and confidence because it's not an intellectual activity. It's a spiritual, empowered activity. You can believe, you can be convinced of the truth of the gospel when the Holy Spirit fills your heart and your mind and gives you the power to obey. That's what we need. That's what Jesus' disciples needed. And that's why he said, go back and wait. And they waited 10 days and bam, and the church was born. Oh, hallelujah. <laughs> That's how we get convinced of the truth of the gospel. And so then we have this little scenario now that develops in verses 6 through 11 where Jesus says, okay, now that I've kind of given you these uh, parting commands and these convincing proofs and told you about the Spirit, now you've got to figure out what to do. And the disciples had already had in mind what they thought was the next step. Verse 6 and 7. So when they had come together, they were asking him, saying, Lord, is it at this time 
you are restoring the kingdom to Israel. Now, do you remember back in the Gospels in Luke and Matthew and Mark, this conversation coming up before? You remember the activity of that nice Jewish mother who wanted to secure special place for her two boys, James and John? Hey, Lord, you know, they've been following you. How about a seat, one on your right side, one on your left? And the other disciples, how dare she do that? That seat's for me, you know, and there's all this back and forth all the way into the upper room. You remember? And so now Jesus died, he rose again, he's presented himself alive, and he's gathered them together. And we know that this is the last time they're together, so the, the, the ending of Luke tells us where they were. They were out near Bethany, they were on the Mount of Olives. And so what are they thinking about? They're thinking, all right, now let's assign those seats on your right and left. Right? That's what's going on. Is this the time? We've been waiting. Come on, let's get this politics situation worked out. We all get kind of sucked into that political world, don't we? Some of us spend too much time watching Fox, I think, or MSLSD or one of those other stations. <laughs> we like to... We like to get into the drama of it all, and our nation is all divided about politics. Well, so were the disciples. Nothing's new under the sun. But you notice Jesus didn't say, you guys are wrong. My kingdom's not of this world. It's a spiritual one. No, he didn't say that. He didn't rebuke them. <laughs> he gave them an answer that has been difficult for the church to accept for nearly 2,000 years. He said... It is not for you to know the times or epochs, the kairos and the chronos, which the Father has fixed by his own authority. He didn't say, no, bad question. He just said, sorry, this information is not available to you at this time. <laughs> but inquiring minds want to know, right? Pastor Phil and I are talking about having a prophecy conference and it's not wrong to have prophecy conferences, but they ought not to subsume what's most important, what matters most is being consumed with the spread of the gospel. And if prophecy can help you preach the gospel, then bring it on, right? That's what it's all about. But Jesus said to these disciples and to us today, you can't know those details. Remember 88 reasons why Jesus is coming again in 1988? That book? Or what about the one 1988? 94. Those books are on sale real cheap right now <laughs> because Jesus said it's not for you to know. That's not the right focus of your attention. Okay, disciples, what is it? What do we need to be focused on? Ah, now we come to the very hub, the nub, the, the kernel of the truth of this. But you will receive power. That's that Holy Spirit, life from the dead, resurrection, power, when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria, even to the remotest part of the earth. That's what matters most. Empowered proclamation of the gospel beginning where? In Jerusalem. Now, a lot of people have kind of taken a different posture and an interpretation of this. Some say, well, that's what, you know, 
Jesus was talking about Jerusalem, and that's where it began, and now after that, it's going to all these other places. Well, that's certainly one way of looking at it. Other churches talk about it at their missions conference. Well, we need to begin in our Jerusalem. So for Valley, that would be what? Hercules, Panol, this whole area here in the East Bay. But that's, an, that's not an interpretation. That's an application. I understand it. But when Jesus stood on the Mount of Olives and he said, you begin in Jerusalem, it's that city right behind him. And then Judea. And this is a pattern that God marked out. And Paul himself understood that pattern. And that's why he said in Romans 1.16, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes what? To the Jew first and also to the Gentile. Now people say, well, does that mean that the Jews are more important? No. God loves Jews and he loves Arabs and he loves everybody just the same. But somehow he set up a structure in which Jews kind of become part of the spark of the controversy. That's the way it was in the first century. I just got through telling you that in the midst of all of this Jesus revolution, it started with a group of Jews. After 1967, when Israel recaptured Jerusalem, there was a wave of the Holy Spirit working among Jews that translated into a move of the Holy Spirit here in North America that became the Jesus Revolution. And in the former Soviet Union, there was a spark of the gospel that started with a group of Jews before the Iron Curtain ever came crashing down. The church figured it out and sent all kinds of missionaries, and now the gospel has been well established in that part of the world. And yet it started with the Jews. And so what does it mean now that we're beginning to see the openness and the spark of perhaps a third wave in Israel? <laughs> well, I'm not a prophet nor the son of a prophet. I do work for a nonprofit organization. <laughs> but what does Paul say in Romans 11? He said, if their rejection of Messiah be the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? Life from the dead, that's what this promise is all about. That God wants us to be his witnesses and we should not forget the Jews because it is through that that God has brought life from the dead in the past and he'll do it in the future and we're going to see it in this world. And that's what being consumed with the spread of the gospel is all about. We need to keep that in view. It's an amazing thing that God has given us this challenge, this vision, which is not a narrow vision. Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the remotest parts of the earth. And we're still working on it, aren't we? But that's what it means. And, and, and we need to remember the significance of Israel and the Jewish people in all of this. I love C.S. Lewis. He said, in a sense, the converted Jew is the only normal human being in the world. And everyone else is, from one point of view, a special case dealt with under emergency conditions. <laughs> well, you're grafted in. You're grafted in. And I'm so glad that we're one in Messiah, but God still is working out that plan, and we need to keep our spiritual eyes alert to this fact and see what God is doing in our day and our age. And the disciples still hadn't figured it out. There they were hearing Jesus talking about, yeah, you're going to be my witnesses, you're going to be my witnesses. Okay, we've got that figured out, but, but you know, you're going to be with us, right, Lord? <laughs> well, Jesus kind of gave them this amazing sermon illustration that drove the point home better than anyone has ever received. They hadn't quite figured it out. And so, in order to drive the point home, we see this last little section, verses 9 through 11. 
And after he said these things, he was lifted up while they were looking on, and a cloud received him out of their sight. And as they were gazing intently into the sky, while he was going, behold, two men in white clothing stood beside them. They also said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into the sky? This Jesus, who has been taken up from you into heaven, will come in just the same way as you've watched him go into heaven. End of sermon. You should be, therefore, consumed with the spread of the gospel because Jesus is coming back. I can, I can just watch this scene. I can imagine in my mind. The disciples are standing around. They're on the Mount of Olives. Jesus is saying, you're going to be my witnesses. They're going, uh-huh, uh-huh. But they hadn't quite figured out the implications of all of this. And, and it says, while they were watching, all of a sudden, he started going up. And they're looking, and, you know, I can just see Peter going, wait a minute, Lord. What are you doing? Come back. I still have a few questions to ask you. <laughs> but he went, and his departure brought home to their hearts the responsibility that had been transferred to them. Now, through the power of the Holy Spirit, they were to proclaim this gospel until he returns. And he's coming again. The sooner the better, amen? amen? Well, what do you want to be doing when he comes? I, I recommend this, what Jesus did. Wouldn't it be great? You're out there, you've got some people gathered around, you're saying, Jesus is the Messiah. You need to repent and believe. He died and rose again. If you trust in him, you're going to have forgiveness for all of your sin. And you better do it quickly because Jesus is going to come back. And when he does, he's going to gather his church up in the twinkling of an eye. We're just going to disappear. And then you're gone. <laughs> I want to be doing that on the streets of Jerusalem. What about you? Talking in your neighborhood, at your, you know, at, at your, your, your school, wherever, proclaiming the gospel when Jesus returns. May our lives reflect that privilege and responsibility. May our hearts be renewed by the power of the Holy Spirit to that task. And may our faith be strengthened in confidence that this gospel is what matters most. Let's pray. Oh, hallelujah. Lord, it is the precious word of the, of the gospel, of the risen Christ, of the forgiveness of sin, of the hope of heaven. Lord, these... These things so much matter, and yet we live in a world where our priorities shift so easily. So remind us, Lord, of what matters most today. Help us to stop messing around with the tyranny of the urgent and help us to rekindle our passion for Christ and for the proclamation of the gospel. Lord, speak to us even now in this time about those you've placed in our lives who need to know this gospel. And Lord, don't let us rest until we speak of your love. Give us the power of the Spirit within to persuade us and to, through us persuade others to entrust their lives to Christ as well. What a privilege. We thank you. We love you. And we praise you. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you.